0: Well, today, as we continue, I'm here to read you the scripture for today's message. And today's word comes from the book of Luke, chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. The message is entitled, The Parable of the Rich Fool. This is the reading of God's word. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to him, Take care You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Amen. Now let's give our attention to the preaching of God's word. Come on, brother, preach.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Pastor Jimmy. Good morning, everyone. My name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central, and it's my privilege to share God's Word with us this morning. Please join me in a word of prayer. Father God, we look to you, and we want to hear your voice this morning. We need to hear your truth because we live in a world of lies, and we are susceptible to believing those lies. I pray that you will give us ears of faith to hear, understand, and apply your goodness, uh, your good word to us this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The problem with the man in this parable is not that he's rich. The Bible never condemns wealth, but does sternly warn against the pitfalls of wealth. The problem with this man is that he is a fool. At the end of this parable, Jesus calls him out not for being, I'm sorry, God calls him out not for being rich, but for being a fool. There's a saying fool's gold and it originated uh, back during the gold rush when prospectors they would think that they found gold but in fact they found what's called iron pyrite which looks a lot like gold but is nowhere near as valuable as gold and today that term in the investment world it refers to any investment that appears to be lucrative but is ultimately worthless The man in this parable is a fool because he believes he found what is so lucrative but turns out to be ultimately, in the end, worthless. We too are susceptible to such folly. And the reason for that is because we believe in the lies that this world tells, the lies that Satan tells. And that lie is this. And the first point this morning is, that your net worth is your life worth. Jesus says in verse 15, be on guard against all covetousness, for your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. The lie is this, your life does consist in the abundance of your possessions. In the agrarian culture, it was all about quantity, how much you have. And today, I would say that it is still the case, but not just how much you have, but what exactly do you have. In other words, brands. One reason we struggle with covetousness is because we live in a highly consumeristic culture that can turn almost anything into a status symbol. I was looking up different status symbols, and I was shocked Maybe I'm just so ignorant, I didn't even realize these are status symbols. Things like strollers, I never knew. Status symbols. Nurseries are status symbols. And of course, the hoodie that you're wearing, the hat that you're wearing, the sneakers that you're wearing, the watch that you're wearing, the car that you're driving, the house that you live in, are all status symbols. And the one that shocked me the most was designer diaper bags. I didn't know that was a thing, but that's a status symbol. And not only do we live in a highly consumeristic culture, but we also live in a highly discontented culture. Let me ask you this. How many people do you know that are around you, your friends, family members, who are truly content? I would say, I would venture to guess, that we know more people who are discontent than are content. We know few people, if any, you would describe as having true contentment and peace with their lives, where they're at, that they have true contentment in Christ. And so when we are surrounded by so many discontented people, that's going to rub off on us, and we're also going to be discontent. So we live in a highly consumeristic culture and a highly discontented culture, culture, which means it's an uphill climb. Advertising is meant to make us discontent. And they're pretty good at it. And we can't help it either. That when we are so discontented and the lie is, well, you will be content in the abundance of your possessions, the brand of your possessions, and all these status symbols, we buy into that. We can't help it. Our eyes are... Barcode readers. We walk around, I do it too, we can't help it, and we're like, that's a $50,000 car, that's a $2 million house, that's a $5,000 watch, those are $200 sneakers, that's a $1,000 bag. We're not even thinking, we just do it because of the culture that we live in. And we're not only just looking at price tags, but we are assessing value and status based on what other people possess. And are wearing. That's what this guy felt in this parable. That he made it. That he had status. And there was a sense of accomplishment in verse 19. He says this, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. He feels like he's made it. Because he has enough to live off of interest for the rest of his life. And for many of us, that is like our goal in life. To ha- imagine this. You've made enough money that you don't have to work. And you can just live off the interest of that money the rest of your life. And not just getting by and barely paying bills. But enough interest that you can just relax, eat, drink, and be merry. This guy has what many of us would call the good life, or as many of us would call the goal in life. This is problematic, and we'll get to it later, because if we view this as the good life and the goal in life, it will disrupt our discipleship and us living our lives to glorify God, following Jesus on the narrow path. But why is this so challenging for us today? Because what this man just described, relaxing, eating, drinking, and being merry, he just described Instagram. That is all we see on Instagram. People relaxing, people eating, people drinking, and people being merry. And in our minds, that is the good life. And that is all we see. We're bombarded with that, and we want that. And I'm not saying there's... That's the heart motive of why everyone posts. We know that that is not true, and I'm not saying social media is evil, but we do know, and it's documented, that social media is known to increase feelings of jealousy, insecurity, and isolation, and those are some of the key ingredients to covetousness, and why many of us wrestle with covetousness and view possessions and brands as what is most important in life. That is a lie we're told. What happens when we believe this lie? The second point, the lie believed. What are the consequences and symptoms of covetousness? The first is this, overspending to keep up and one up. According to one Wealth Index survey, they discovered that more than a third of Americans say that their spending habits were influenced by what they saw on social media and that there's a correlation between social media use and overspending. And we're not just talking about overspending your money, but overspending your energy and your thoughts and emotions based on what you see on social media because they want to keep up with what they're seeing. And not only does covetousness, when we have the wrong view of possessions, incite us to to keep up. We're not satisfied with that alone, but in a consumeristic culture, we want to one-up Keeping up is not enough. We feel this need to one-up one another. The company Apple, they are not a Christian company, but I would say they know a lot about sinful nature. They know a lot about the theology of sin, especially covetousness, and they profit from our covetous desire to keep up and to one-up. And I think that Samsung could learn a lot from Apple on how to profit from our sinful nature. For example, Samsung, their phones, it's like how would you know which one is better, the A42 or the S20? Their naming convention, there's no way to know whose phone is better, which one is newer. But Apple, they're geniuses. Some would say that the way that they name their phones are so uncreative, but I think its simplicity actually is brilliant Because we know, because they know our sinful desire, where you are in the pecking order, 11, 12, 13. There's no like A42 and S20. 11, 12, 13, you know if you're behind, you know if you're caught up, and you know if you're one-upping. And we're just competing. And we buy into this. John Piper, he says this, the movement of your money signifies the movement of your heart. Where your money goes, your heart is going. You exchange money for what you value and what you treasure. Does the movement of your money, your energy, your thoughts, prove that you're just trying to always keep up or one up? What does it say about your ultimate treasure and what you value? Not only are one of the consequences overspending to keep up and one-up, also anxiety. Because keeping up and one-upping is stressful. It is so stressful. That is why covetous people are stressed out and anxious. Which is why later in this chapter, Jesus has to say, do not be anxious about your life. He's speaking to people who have bought into the lie that your possessions and abundance and brands are everything. So he says, stop stressing out so much. Why are you so anxious? And again, the context is discipleship. You're anxious about all the wrong things. You need to seek first the kingdom of God. And the result when we're so anxious is that we lack peace and contentment. You'll never meet a covetous, joyful person does not exist. Another consequence of believing this lie is sadness and shame. One Christian author he writes about how he was trying to explain to his young son what covetousness and envy are. And he says that envy cries over others' wealth. When we're envious and covetous, it makes us sad. The scrolling through your phone make you sad. And the ironic thing is that people aren't posting sad things. They're posting very happy things, and yet the effect on us is that it makes us so sad. The Bible teaches us to weep when others are weeping, to rejoice when others rejoice, and yet envy and covetousness flips that around, and so we weep instead when other people are rejoicing And in a more sinister way, we rejoice when other people are weeping. Because of covetousness, not only are you unhappy with your own life, you're unhappy with other people's lives, which means you're quite miserable. Not only does covetousness make us feel sad, but it also makes us feel shame. Let me ask a poignant question and be very honest Are you embarrassed? that you don't have X, Y, Z? Are you embarrassed that you drive this car and not that car? Are you embarrassed that you live in an apartment and you don't own a house? Are you embarrassed because your engagement ring is below X number of carats or that it's not a diamond? Are you embarrassed because your kids aren't dressed a certain way? I think if we're honest, we would, we would all admit we felt that embarrassment and shame. And that's what covetousness does. It amplifies that shame. Shame is powerful. One economist says that shame magnifies consumerism. And that's so true. Our human nature, we will do almost anything to not feel embarrassed or shame. Almost anything, we will spend as much as possible to cover our shame. We will work, overwork, in order to cover our shame. Another consequence is anger. That same father trying to explain to his son what covetousness does. He says, it's wanting something so much that it makes you fussy. It makes you fussy. Covetous people are angry people. They're angry when they don't get their idol. Brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, you already have Christ. You don't need to do anything to get more of Christ. And so when we get angry, it's because there's another idol that we don't have because what we're saying is Jesus is not enough. And so we get angry for all the wrong reasons. We get angry at our coworkers, our bosses, our spouses, our children. This leads to the next The next point, when we're covetous, we increasingly view people as rivals or obstacles. It's really hard to love people genuinely, to serve them and to care for them when we struggle with envy. We may fake it that we're friends with people and that we like them, but deep down, we have a problem with them because there's a problem in our heart. The problem actually isn't them, it's in our heart. In Genesis, when God had no regard for Cain's offering, it says that Cain was very angry, and we know what happened there. He viewed his brother Abel as a rival, as as someone who was getting in the way of what he wanted and what he did to do, he murdered him. Now, we don't murder people just because we're coveting, but we do murder them in our hearts. And we don't love them. James writes, what causes quarrels and fights among you? He says, you covet and do not obtain, therefore you murder. That's why we argue and quarrel and fight with our spouses and with others It's because there's an idol that we want and we're not getting it. And so we view people as rivals or either obstacles and we quarrel and we wage war. Another consequence, and I mentioned this earlier, is that it's a distraction from discipleship when we believe this lie. Why did Jesus share this parable in the first place? So it's important that we look at the context of this chapter. We didn't read this, but I'll share it with you. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus is teaching his disciples and there's a large crowd, thousands of people listening in and he's teaching his disciples about discipleship and it's a very passionate sermon. He's saying, following me, I'm summarizing this, is going to lead to persecution but do not fear. Fear the one who is in heaven more than any person who is here on earth and following me may lead to a lot of hardships, but the Holy Spirit will empower you on that moment to do so that you know what to do and that you know what to say. And then in the middle of this impassioned sermon, this man interrupts Jesus and says, Jesus, teacher, can you tell my brother to share his inheritance with me? This man who interrupted Jesus did not care about discipleship. What he wanted from Jesus was not to follow him, but was for Jesus to give him what he wanted. And what did he want? What did he care the most about? What was he so consumed by? Possessions. Why? Because that is what he believed was most important in life. And Jesus was either going to be an obstacle or he was going to be a helper. Jesus refused Of course, Jesus could have arbitrated between him and his brother, but he refused to assist this man in getting his idol because by doing so, it would have interrupted and disrupted his discipleship. There are a lot of sneakerheads here at CCSC, and I'm sure if you get those fresh new pair of sneaks that are really nice, you're very careful when you first wear them, like you don't want to put too much weight on the front on your toes because you don't want to crease the sneakers, especially if they're fresh white sneakers. You're going to avoid, you know, certain paths. You're going to take the, the longer route because it's, I don't know, grassy or dirty. You want to the cleanest, smoothest path to walk on. Taking up our cross is going to crease your sneakers. Following Christ means you're going to have to go on the narrow path. And if we view our possessions and the things of this world, like those fresh new sneaks, we're never going to follow Jesus. You're going to prioritize the things of this world over discipleship. The fool had the wrong perspective. And Jesus says, you can't serve God and money. You can't. It has to be one or the other. I think there are people here who think, I can do it. No, I I can do both. I can just go back and forth. I got this. No, Jesus is so clear. It's one or the other. And it will be a distraction to discipleship. Lastly, one of the last consequences is this, is that When we believe this lie and we buy into that possessions are everything, it's going to be a subtraction from our eternal treasure. The one thing that those who are covetous cannot afford is to be generous. They can't afford that because they're spending what they have on themselves. Which means this they are actually missing out on true, everlasting treasure. In Luke 12, later in this chapter, Jesus says this, verse 33, Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. According to the Bible, generosity is how we store up treasure in heaven. Eternal, lasting treasure. Now, we're not saying here, sell everything you have today. No, but this attitude, this heart of generosity, investing in the future, in eternity, in heaven, we can only have that mindset if we don't believe this lie. So how do we disbelieve this lie? How do we expose this lie? The last point this morning is this: the lie exposed. We need to zoom out and we need to zoom in. We need to zoom out and see the bigger picture. In the middle of this parable, the biggest thing on our minds is this guy's barns. They're massive. We are using our imaginations. It's taking up the entire picture. But by the end of this parable, it zooms out so fast. It's like throwing a bucket of ice-cold water on your face, and you snap out of it because suddenly he's dead, And he's standing before God on the day of judgment, having to give an account of his life and everything that he spent, every penny. And when we zoom out and see the biggest picture, the bigger picture, we realize those barns, it's just like a speck of sawdust when we're standing before God. And we're standing on the edge of eternity. At best, possessions can prepare us for years, but they cannot prepare us for eternity. At the end of this parable, it zooms out, and we finally see his folly because we finally see his fate. And his fate, brothers and sisters, is all of our fate. None of us can avoid death. There is no back door into heaven. There's one front door and God is in front of it, and there's a throne of judgment where we will all be judged based on what two things? First is our faith, that only those who have placed their faith in Jesus, the gospel is so clear, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone that we are saved. Only those people are welcomed into heaven. Those who have not placed their faith in Christ remain dead in their sin, And the wrath of God will remain upon them for eternity in hell. The second thing we'll be judged on is our works. Yes, believers, us, we will be judged based on our works. That does not determine how we get into heaven. It determines what we get in heaven, our eternal reward and treasure. Unbelievers will also be judged based on their works. And that will determine their degree of punishment in hell for eternity. And the ironic thing is this, that this man's wealth, his great wealth, it actually backfired on him. He thought that it was going to increase his merriment, which it did in this life. But it ended up increasing his punishment in heaven, in hell for eternity. Jesus says later in this chapter that to whom much was given, much will be required. That applies to believers and unbelievers. James chapter 5 verse 3. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. He says that your gold and your silver are actually going to be evidence against you. And increase your judgment. So the question is, brothers and sisters, will our gold and silver, our money, our possessions, will will they be evidence on that day of judgment for us or against us? It will be exhibit A, exhibit B, exhibit C, how we spent our possessions. Lastly, lastly, How do we expose this lie? One is first was to zoom out and see the bigger picture. And this is probably more important is zoom in on Christ. When we zoom in on Christ, we won't believe this lie that life consists in the abundance of our possessions. We won't won't believe the lie that it's all about status symbols, keeping up in one upping we'll finally be content when we zoom in on Christ. We need to zoom in on Christ and picture him, his willingness to go to the cross. His willingness to be nailed to the cross and to remain nailed to the cross rather than calling upon and using his divine authority to have angels descend and to rescue him. We need to zoom in on Christ, him bleeding, him groaning, him dying for our sins, all of our sins, so that we could be reconciled with God. We need to zoom in on Christ and him resurrected, glorious, resurrected body knowing that we're going to share in that as well, that his body and what happened to him is going to happen to us. We need to zoom in on Christ and him seated at the right hand of God right now, praying for you, shepherding you, empathizing with you, loving you. We need to zoom in on Christ and picture him returning in glory and power in the clouds at the sound of a trumpet knowing that he's going to return and picture him wiping away every tear, him making all things new and inviting us into this heavenly kingdom. When we zoom in on Christ, there we see true gold and we're no longer fooled by fool's gold. When we zoom in on Christ, only then are we willing to take up our cross every day and to follow him. We're no longer buying into the lie that our life consists in the abundance of our possessions. We're no longer competing to keep up or to one up. We're free. You're finally free and liberated to follow Jesus. No longer shackled by the philosophy of this world. Let me close with this. Matthew chapter six, Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Jesus is talking about the health of our eyes, but he's not talking about our physical sense of sight. He's talking about our spiritual sense of sight, not our prescription, but our perspective on life. And the only way that we'll have the proper perspective, we'll see, in other words, what really matters and what really doesn't matter that much. The only way we'll have that proper perspective is by looking to Christ every day. The less we look at Christ, the less healthy our eyes are and our perspective. Everything is disproportionate. But when we look at Christ regularly, and I want to encourage you to do so, I want to say, yes, the most important way is coming to church on Sundays, but it's so much more than that on a regular basis, on a daily basis. Make sure that you're looking at Christ. You're preaching the gospel to yourself. And then you'll find that your vision is becoming healthier. Your values are changing. Your perspective is changing. What you love and what you think is worthwhile is going to change as well. Let's pray. Father God, we pray for healthy eyes. We pray for the proper biblical gospel perspective on all of life. We confess that we struggle with covetousness. We confess that we believe the lie. We confess that we're keeping up and and one-upping and that we're anxious and we're sad and we're shamed. Father God, we thank you that in Christ, when we look to him, that we're liberated from that. As we sing this last song, Father God, I pray that your spirit would work in us and to help us to see Jesus with spiritual eyes. And everything that we have in him, the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting, and that we are called sons and daughters of God, that that would make us so full satisfied and content. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.